One of the things that parents of young children learn quickly is that there is nowhere your children are immune from getting into trouble. I can recall a, a moment from a couple years ago when we had sent one of our sons to his room. For whatever reason, he, he got in trouble for something. And a little while later, we thought, boy, is he ever quiet. Which is never a good sign, right? So we went upstairs and we opened the door to his room and were aghast when we saw. He had climbed up and found a bottle of baby powder and had proceeded to spread it everywhere. All over the carpet, the, the floor, the drapes, the beds, the books, himself. It was a disaster. Now every, every nurse or doctor here is going like, cancer! <laughs> but don't worry, he was fine. We, uh, we recovered from this just fine, but, uh, it, it taught us a lesson as parents. One of the first thing, thoughts that ran through my head though, in that moment, was, what are we ever gonna do with you? <laughs> If you have parents, you might have heard those lines directed at you as kids at some point. If you are a parent, you've likely directed words like that at your own kids at some point. What are we ever going to do with you? And of course, this can be thought, this can be a thought that we have at much more serious times than what I described. Right? We can, we were merely annoyed and <laughs> bewildered by the mess our kid had made. But this can express Extreme frustration, even a, a broken heart with tears. What am I going to do with you? The biblical passage that we'll be studying today, we're going to hear God utter similar sentiments. He, he blurts out almost to the letter, what am I going to do with you? Like a, a loving parent lamenting over their wayward children. And through his lament over his people, I believe we can hear so much of, of God's heart exposed today. The heart of what God desires from his people, even from us to this day. If you would, I'd invite you to open your Bibles up to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea 6 if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, that can be found on page 754. Before we read this and jump in, however, I want to pause. So as you find it, would you bow your hearts with me and pray together? Dedicate this time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak to us. That you would teach us, that you would grow us, that you would mold us more into your image. Wherever there is... Wherever we need conviction, we pray that you would bring that to us this morning. Wherever we need comfort, may we see that in you. Wherever we need encouragement to press on, may we get that today through what you have for us in your word. We all come needing something, but what we need most is we need you. And so we open our, heart, our hearts and our minds to hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we've gone through this prophetic book of Hosea together, we've seen how God's people had terribly betrayed God and his ways, and how God pursued his people with judgment, yes, but also with gracious love. 
forgiveness and mercy. At the end of chapter 5, though, we saw some of God's fiercest warnings of judgment. But what God wanted most in those times was he wanted, he didn't want retribution, he wanted repentance. Then chapter 6 opened with these incredibly beautiful, hopeful words. Follow along from the beginning of chapter 6. It says this, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So so in these verses, the prophet Hosea was pleading with his people, please come back to the Lord with me. And why? Because... God had hurt them, but he wanted to heal them. And he had the power to actually raise them from the dead. Ultimately, God, in his faithfulness, he says, would return to save them. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. However, after this... It's like God takes the microphone back, the quotation marks end there, and and he goes, If only. I wish that were true of you. This beautiful optimism of the first three verses just dissipates. As it appears that Israel, God's people, wasn't currently capable of that desired response. Hosea had been expressing the ideal, what God desperately wanted from his people. But they weren't doing it. They weren't following Hosea into repentance. His words were going for naught. He was being ignored or dismissed. And so God has an emotional outburst of sorrow in verse 4. Read it with me. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Now, how's that for an anticlimax? A letdown. It's heartbreaking. God is bewildered here. He's frustrated. He's exasperated by all his people, Ephraim and Judah. He despairs over them, ever heeding the call to repentance they just heard in verses 1 to 3. After soaring to the heights over the first verses, now things come crashing back to the ground. And you know, I think that this could accurately describe how we often feel about ourselves. At times, we get what could be called a spiritual high. We go, we come back from a camp, or a retreat, or a conference, or an amazing worship service, and, and we're just filled up. It's like we've returned to God again, and we've revived, we're refreshed. But then, life goes on. Normalcy returns. And our spiritual performance dwindles. 
our emotions fade, disappear, much like the morning dew or fog disappears. In the words of some lyrics from the Christian band Casting Crowns, we lose our follow-through between the altar and the door. I have a feeling that many of us live with perpetual spiritual disappointment. We could say these words about ourselves, let alone God saying them about us. What shall I do with you? What shall I do with you? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes away early. Have you ever driven through fog so thick that you could barely see anything in front of you? And then driven back through that same area an hour or two later, only to have no trace of fog? That's the nature of fog, which is what Hosea is talking about there by morning cloud. It rolls in, sometimes very thick and heavy, for a period of time. But then inevitably the fog clears. The sun burns it off, it rises into the sky, it blows away. God was saying that his people's love was like that. It might seem strong, but it's only temporary. It's the same idea with the morning dew. When you wake up in the summer, everything's wet outside, but then within a short time, the dew just disappears. It it evaporates or it soaks in. It it goes away early, as he says. But don't rush over what God clearly wanted from his people here. He wanted their love. Your love is like this. He's mourning over their love. He was mourning their their fickle, here-today-gone-tomorrow love. And his his mounting frustration was actually revealing this this undercurrent throughout Hosea of of his own unwavering love. These were were not cries of someone who wanted to crush someone. These were cries of a frustrated lover. a lover frustrated at his own lover's wanderings, constant wanderings. And the tragic abandonment of love called for tragic consequences, which are described in the next verse. In verse 5 it says, Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. Now here's the, the hard lesson that we can learn from these first couple verses. When the love that God desires of us disappears, we deserve to be judged. Okay, when, when the love God desires of us disappears, we deserve to be judged. And this goes back to our very nature, our very purpose on earth. We, if you didn't know, we were created to love God. It is our most intrinsic purpose to reflect God as his image, to obey God, and to glorify God. That's who we are as humans. Meanwhile, God is entirely worthy of every ounce of our affection. He is neither emotionally needy nor like a beggar pleading with us to worship him. He absolutely deserves our love. And if he didn't demand it, that would be wrong for him. 
It would be like God himself were making something greater than him. That he himself would be an idolater. But he is holy and he is worthy of all worship. And when we betray our own nature and combat God's nature, we deserve the consequences. In this situation in Hosea, the results would be deadly. It says, therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. This is, this is violent battle talk. To, to hew something is like to chop or to slice it like with an axe. And, of course, soldiers were often slain in battle, felled by swords or spears or the like. But did you notice God's interesting weapons of choice? Look at verse 5. Therefore, I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Have you ever played the game of Clue before? In Clue, you're trying to investigate a murder and you're, you're trying to figure out, you're making guesses as to who made the kill, where, with what weapon. Like Mr. Green in the ballroom with the rope. Or Miss Scarlet with the revolver in the kitchen. Well, if we were doing this in Hosea, the results would be God in the Holy Land with what? With words. Words. With the prophets. Fascinating, right? Now, this is obviously figurative here, the slaying and hewing, but God was saying that he was having his people be hewn or slain by his prophets' words. How can someone be slain by words? Well, the prophets' words were constantly warning of the imminent judgment coming. Also, the the prophets constantly assailed people with their guilt. It was kind of like an attack on them. And yet on another level, their words were so convicting, it was like their words were cutting them to the heart. Elsewhere in Scripture, God's word is described as the sword of the Spirit. In Hebrews 4.12 it says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Let me ask you, have you ever felt like God's word was cutting you open? Like it was so convicting that it hurt? I know I have at times. God's words are often like a sword which seeks to kill sin in us. And sometimes it can seem like it even slays us. Our old life is left hewn and bloody on the ground. And we need resurrection. But despite the the violent imagery here, It's actually a mercy of God that judgment starts with words. Think about it. He could just take us straight to exile or to destruction or to death or to hell. But instead, 
he sends his words to first warn us and to give us an opportunity to repent. And whether or not we today still have prophets, we still have God's powerful word. And his words can fittingly warn us. Warn us of God's judgment, just like they did back then. It says at the end of verse 5, And my judgment goes forth as the light. So like the, the sun burning away the fog, or like a spotlight shining in their hearts, God's light of judgment will shine forth into the wickedness and fallenness of this world. So, If not loving God the way we're meant to love him is so serious, then we should ask, what is the love that God desires of us? And what does this love look like in our lives? Thankfully, that question is explicitly answered in the very next verse. Read with me, end of verse 5. And my judgment goes forth as the light. Verse 6, 4. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. Now, this verse truly gets to the heart of the matter. Pun fully intended. It's about our hearts. Okay? See, this is the point. The love God desires of us is defined by covenantal relationship, not impersonal religion. There's a distinction there. You could also say it this way, simpler. The love God desires is defined by inward love, not outward displays. Okay, you, The love God desires of us is defined by covenantal relationship with God, not impersonal religion. Maybe you've wondered at times in your life, what does God want from me? What does he want from me, really? At the end of the day, here's your answer. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The people of Israel had got it all backwards. They thought they could live in sin as as long as they kept up appearances. They, as long as they kept going to an altar and having priests kill a lamb or a bull for them, they'd be okay. Their sins would be paid for and they could get right back to it. The, the aroma of burnt animals is what God was after anyway. Right? Wrong. Yes, God had instituted the Jewish sacrificial system in the first place. But it wasn't because he liked blood and altars and slaughter and smoke. Not at all. He had people sacrifice animals in order to sear onto their hearts the cost of sin. That's what he wanted from them. He wanted to sear onto their hearts the cost of sin. And he wanted to move their hearts to worship the God who graciously provides mercy for sin. What God was after all along wasn't the sacrifices. He was after their hearts. His desire for his people was hesed, or steadfast love. Other versions say mercy or loyalty. And this this word, this phrase, is talking about the love that flowed from God's covenant with his people. Very much like the love that is shared in a marriage between a husband and wife. God wanted 
love, and he wanted his people to truly know him. He says he, he desires steadfast love and not sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God was looking at people's hearts, not on the outside, on the inside. He didn't care if his, if his people could put on a spectacular show of piety. You could sacrifice out the wazoo and be a hypocrite in your heart. No, God wanted people to be genuinely transformed by loving him and loving others. Jesus loved quoting this verse during his ministry on earth. In Matthew 9 and 13, we see a couple clear instances of him quoting this and directing it at the religious leaders of his day. Like when he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came, to, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now Jesus' point was not just to put down all religion as a whole. But to say instead that the heart of true religion is not rigidly following rules and laws. But the, the heart of true religion is your heart's devotion and worship. Now question. Does this mean that the Old Testament sacrifices were a bad thing? No, not at all. It means that God's people were missing the whole point of the sacrifices, which were meant to affect heart change, not earn them merit or forgiveness. To translate this to us in 2017, God desires your heart not your regular church attendance. He desires your sincere adoration and worship, not your mere singing of songs. God wants you to give him your love, not your money. God doesn't just want our sermons or our personal devotions He wants us to know him. God doesn't want our our serving, our, our meals of fellowship together, our small groups, our evangelism. Now, of course, a lot of the things God does actually desire from us. But if, but if they are not born out of love, or affecting change in our hearts, they are meaningless. So, ask yourself, what would pursuing steadfast love and the knowledge of God look like for you? It probably doesn't mean stopping whatever religious practices you have in your life. But it may mean radically altering the way you view them. You cannot impress God. You cannot put Him in your debt. He doesn't need you anyway. What He cares about is what is going on inside of you. Not outside. So, as you you hear God's words spoken to you, is your heart being molded and transformed by it? As you serve God... Are you doing it out of love and gratitude or out of pressure and duty or habit? As you sing, are you allowing the the lyrics to express your heart's 
prayer to God? Or are you more concerned about what other people around you are thinking? As we come together each week on Sundays or in our small groups, are we asking, how can this help me deepen my relationship and love Jesus more today or love him more this next week? God doesn't care if we just keep going through the religious motions and we may just be killing time until his judgment sweeps in on our hearts. Where's your heart? Now, when I say that that God desires love of us, you might think, well, why is this such a big deal? I mean, who really cares if we love or don't love God? What does it really matter? Well, the Bible, which we believe is God's words to us, says that this matters deeply to God. And here's the key. If this God is the one who designed us, and he's the one who defines morality, and he's the one who deserves worship, then it absolutely matters whether or not we love him. And when we don't, well, that's a lot bigger deal than we can imagine. Here's, here's the next point. That we betray and defile the love God desires of us through our sin. We betray and, and defile the love God desires of us through our sin. Sin really is a betrayal of God's love. Verse 6 tells us, tells us clearly what God desired of his people. But that wasn't what God was getting. Listen to the, the sad description of their current state of affairs. In the end of verse 6, he desires the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Verse 7. But, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Gilead is a city of evildoers, tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Now, in verse 7, when God mentions Adam, scholars are divided on what he's referring to. Some think this refers to a city. Other things it refers to Adam, the original man, or both. The key thing to note is not necessarily which Adam this is talking about, but that the Israelites were committing a serious crime against God. It says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. See, God had made this covenant with his people, which he would never, ever break. But they were blatantly breaking it over and over again. Transgressing a covenant would be pretty parallel to a married person cheating on their spouse. So imagine if I heartlessly spurned my wife, went to other women, and then on top of that I pulled out my wedding certificate, just ripped that to shreds, and I got my wedding ring, any wedding videos, pictures I could find, had those destroyed, went on and on. That might, that might give you a little picture, a little bit, of the way that we've treated God. One scholar says this verse should be translated, they have walked on my covenant like dirt. 
so God's people didn't just break a promise. They stomped all over it and defiled it. No wonder Hosea says later that in the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. They had rebelled against God in horrible ways. They had, it says they dealt faithlessly with God. They, they turned their backs on how they had promised to live. Verse 8 implies that just about everyone fell into corruption and violence and, and bloodshed. Verse 9 talks about robbers lying in wait. But wait, it's not talking about robbers, is it? It's talking about priests, the, the top religious leaders, acting like robbers and murderers. And then verse 9 says that, that God's people were committing villainy. Now that's not speaking of comic book villainy like the Joker or Lex Luthor. Okay? This, is, this is a powerful Hebrew term referring to human depravity of all kinds. The New Living Translation says that they practice every kind of sin. And then verse 10 talks about whoredom in Israel, which was both metaphorical and literal. Now, you might hear all of that and think, well, they sound like pretty corrupt people. But I haven't done all those things. I, I'm not a thieving, murderous villain. And sure, I'll grant you this, okay? That plenty of people seem way worse than us. But neither can I deny these facts. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. Every one of us here are sinners. And even if I haven't committed the worst outward sins, I've gone plenty far in my heart. Right? If you count murder and adultery of the heart, like Jesus did, I've broken every single one of the Ten Commandments. Every time there's a list of sins in the Bible, there are always more sins on there that I have committed than sins I haven't. We all have to get to the point of admitting this. We have to say, I have transgressed God's covenant of love. I, he loved me, and I didn't love him back. I loved myself and everything else instead. I have dealt faithlessly with God. I have seen a horrible thing in myself. I am defiled. And the reason we have to get to the point of admitting this is because confession is the beginning of repentance, which is where God begins to heal us. And when we refuse to see our sin or we refuse to actively repent of it from our hearts, we do tragic damage to ourselves, fighting against God's ideal for us, His desire for us. God never says here, notice, He never says that He wants to judge His people. In his holiness, he must judge sin. But what he wants to do is to love and to restore and to heal 
His people. Therefore, when we lack the love God wants from us, it frustrates God's deepest desire. And this is the last point. The lack of the love God desires of us hinders God's desire to heal us. Our lack of the love God desires of us hinders God's desire to heal us. Listen to the end of this passage. Listen to how God's heart peeks through. Verse 11. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel. So this is what he hopes, what he plans to do. Instead of bringing a harvest of judgment, he loved to bring a harvest of blessings. He desires to restore their fortunes, to heal them from their whoredom. But, it's like every time he wanted to heal them, he'd be confronted with their sin. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely, the thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. So nothing was stopping. Imagine if, if you went to the doctor for a sickness, and he prescribed you some medicine. Saying, if you take this medicine for so many days, it will heal you. But then you went home, and you not only refused to take any of the medicine, you continued to do everything that caused you to get sick in the first place. Okay, you not eating properly, not sleeping, not washing your hands, whatever. All these things that make us sick, you just keep doing that. Your doctor would be like, well, I tried. <laughs> Right? I, I wanted you to get better. But you didn't cooperate. This is kind of like what God wants, wanted to do with his people. He prescribed how they could be healed, but they refused to go along with the plan. They weren't repenting. They weren't returning to him. On the contrary, they continued to do every activity that made them sick. And so instead of healing them, God would end up exposing them it says, when I would heal them, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed. It's all exposed. God's like, I would heal them, but their sin and corruption just ever increases. It's it worse. It reminds me of Jesus' comments in John 5. Where he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You're looking right at the cure. But you're not taking it. God's people went just right on with their lives as if nothing was wrong. They'd ignore their symptoms, the, the warnings. They wouldn't even consider what God thought. Verse 2 says this, But they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before my face. So his people were oblivious to the danger they were in. They were willfully ignorant. One might wonder if God was talking about ancient Israel here or modern Canada. They do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them. They are before 
my face. The message paraphrases, it never crosses their mind that I keep account of their every crime. From God's perspective, they were drowning. They were engulfed in sin. Derek Kidner says, people's bland dismissal of any question of divine judgment has made repentance virtually unthinkable. God was laughably irrelevant. To God, by contrast, a people and its sins are anything but irrelevant. Guilt does not fade with time. It wraps a people round. It stares God in the face. So, so it becomes all the more vital, hearing all this, all the more vital to ensure that we are loving God and loving others the way God desires. If the lack of the love actually hinders God's healing, if it actually keeps us doomed, this is vital. Some of you may wonder, okay, I want to love God. I want to. But I don't feel any love for Him. Maybe you feel depressed or joyless, alone, angry, betrayed. So you don't feel love. But listen, if you think my point today is that you've got to conjure up all the right emotional feelings, you've totally misunderstood me. Our emotions are important. Absolutely. But they should, and they should eventually follow our actions. But simple emotions don't lead to heart change. Heart change leads to emotions. I love this quote from Tim Keller. It says, it's a mistake to think that you must feel love to give it. So don't ask, what are, what are you doing to, to feel more love for God today? What are you doing to give more love to God to and others today? For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Our lack of the love God desires of us hinders God's desire to heal us. But I'll tell you this. It's a good thing it didn't stop him altogether. What shall I do with you? It's a good thing that was a rhetorical question. Not meant to be answered. Because God knew what he was going to do. God had decided what to do. He, he decided that his wishes there near the end of this passage would become reality when he would restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal my people. And he would accomplish this, we know now, by sending Jesus as the Savior of the world. Jesus would live the life that we epically fail to live. Jesus would die the death that we all deeply deserve to die. And then Jesus would rise again and establish a new covenant of love with his people. Just as he promised through the words of another prophet, Jeremiah, said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make. I will put my law within them, 
and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Those are words that don't slay. Those are words that bring life. And did you catch that last line? I will remember their sins no more. So before, before Jesus, God couldn't see anything but his people's sin that was flaunted in his face. But after, God says that he would effectively forget that those sins even existed. How? The answer is Christ. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So once surrounded by our sin, we can now be surrounded by Christ's righteousness. Now our deeds don't surround us. Jesus' deeds do. When God looks at his people, he sees Christ. That is a much better thing to stare you in the face, wouldn't you say? And that is how God will see you. If you give him your heart in order to love him, to know him. For that is what God truly desires of us all. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, We have fallen so short of what you want from us. We need you. We need your grace. And we thank you so much that that grace is abundantly available to us through Jesus. May we not leave here depressed. May we leave here lifted up by him. You are the lifter of our heads. God, we pray, as we have read a lot of things, heard a lot of things today, may you shine forth through them. Like I prayed earlier, convict where we need it, encourage where we need it. Spur us on to live for you today and the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen.